Okay, well, that's a shame it stopped there, but... Now, don't you go telling Owen that we had Dolly Parton on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You'd think that I would deserve a fair promotion. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. I swear sometimes that man is out to get me. They let you dream just to watch them shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder. But you've got dreams. Yeah, can you hear it? But you've got dreams and he'll never take them away. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends waiting for the day your ship will come in and the tide's going to turn your way. Well, I wonder if that's how you feel about work sometimes. Here's some statistics for you. The average Briton, and this comes from a survey from the Office for, Sta Office for Research and Statistics, the average Briton works 1,625 hours a year. Now, that is the average Briton, and so don't forget that that also includes people, like retired people in that number, and part-time workers, and all that sort of thing. But the average British worker works for 1,625 hours a year. In Victorian times, it was more like 3,000 hours a year. Listen to this. Here's a bit of history. Some of you might remember this from your history lessons. The Factories Act. 1847, sorry, not 1947. 1847, and people like Lord Shaftesbury were involved in this reform. Parliament reduced working hours in the textile industry for women and children to a maximum of 58 hours a week. That was 10 hours a day, and that excluded your breaks and eight hours on a Saturday. And that was reducing it. They brought that law in to reduce it because it had been worse than that. You note that there were no restrictions for men. Three years later, 1850s Factories Act, children and women could only work now from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. in the summer and from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. in the winter. And all work would end on Saturday at 2 o'clock. Once again, this was seen as real progress because it stopped children working from 3 o'clock in the morning and that type of thing. But the only ways they could get it by the employers was to up the amount of hours again to 60 from 58. Since the 1800s, life expectancy has more than doubled. Not surprising when you read those statistics, eh? Average life expectancy in the UK is now 80 years old. It was 40 in 1841. But the average life expectancy in Sierra Leone is 47 today. So let's look at percentages of what we spend our time on, according to the Office for Research and Statistics. Sleep, 36%. Free time, 23%. I'll explain the brackets in a minute. Paid work and study, 13%. It's very low, isn't it? Domestic work, 13%. Meals and personal care, 9%. Travel, 6%. Now, um, I purposely did not copy the male-female figures here because, uh, surprisingly enough, domestic work for women is considerably higher than that. As is free time. Leisure time. Free time is less than that for women because they're doing all the jobs that the men are putting their feet up around. However, paid work and study is greater for men. Okay? 
The numbers in brackets are the percentage in terms of your waking hours. So out of your waking hours, 36% of your time is free time, 20% of it is paid work and study, and 20% is domestic work. Now, once again, those are averages, and they have included retired people and people like that in it, because some of you are sitting there thinking, I certainly do a lot more than 13% of my day, of my week on paid work. But this is averages across the population, not including children. I guess for those of us who, for example, would do an eight-hour day, it's pretty much broken down into thirds. Okay, so our, our working week or our week of seven days would be broken down into a third of that time is spent sleeping, a third of the time is spent working, and a third of the time is spent in free time, or all the other things that we fit in plus leisure. So we spend about a third of our, of our time working in an average week. Now, of course, we have also then have annual leave to add into that, so it, it does work out less than that, really, but in an average week, that's sort of what it looks like. So compared to our, our forebears in Victorian times, we're pretty well off. We're certainly pretty well off in terms of uh, many other nations in the world. Uh, so Mexico, for example, they, their, their working hours are, are closer to 3,000 to, to that, to, to that um, Victorian figure. Um, but look at these satisfaction levels with work-life balance. So again, this is the UK population working population now questioned on their feelings about work-life balance. And around about 58% of us are judged to have 48%, sorry, about 48% of us are judged to have a low level of satisfaction in terms of our work-life balance. Only 15% of us feel are satisfied, are fully satisfied with our work-life balance. 37% of us feel it's okay. The vast majority of us feel it's not. So the amount of hours that we work has reduced significantly. Our life expectancy has gone up, and yet the population as a whole remains broadly unsatisfied with its work-life balance. Why might that be? And what does God say about it? Well, okay, let's have a look at work in Genesis, how it was supposed to be. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and I put this in bold, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now God the Lord God had planted in the garden, a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And then down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and take care of it. And that word work, translated from the Hebrew, 
is a word that means prepare and tend. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to prepare and tend it and take care of it. Let's pray. Father, we are ever so grateful for the way you've spoken to us this morning in just so many ways, just again helping us to see that your presence with us is so very precious and it's something that you want us to thirst for and we do thirst for it. And uh, I pray that in these next few minutes that we spend just looking at your word that you would draw us again into your presence. You would make us thirsty for you as we consider what we do with our working hours. Lord, that even in that we might thirst for you. We might long for you. We might serve you. It might be all about you. Lord, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God made man to take a really key role in maintaining the created order of things, to engage in productive work. So I I was interested just to read how the Bible puts it, that it says in that passage we've just read that no plant of the field had sprung up because God hadn't sent rain and there was no man to work the ground. Actually, the whole of creation was put in place with the idea that that man would play a key part in maintaining and joining in with what God had created. This thing that God looked at on his Sabbath rest and said, wow, this is good. And actually, it's not only good, but I intend man to share with me the joy of maintaining and tending this if, if ever you have this debate with people about creation and how man came to be, the thought that we could just be uh, some chance development uh, where it could have been any of the apes that developed into us, this blows that out of the water because God always, always intended that man should not only be the pinnacle of what he had made, but would be share an active part in maintaining and tending for what he had made. And just as an aside about that, sometimes Christians will get into a debate about how God did the whole process of bringing man to be. And I think the most important thing is to always remember that whatever method he chose to use, we were always intended to be the pinnacle of what he made. And how do we then deal with it when we have very different feelings from other people about how we went about it? Because there will be some people, probably even sitting in the room here, there will be people who will have very different thoughts and beliefs about how we did it. Some people will believe the biblical account of seven days, and he made it in seven 24-hour periods, Others will judge that that 24-hour period is extended to much more than that. And the process that God used is how I would term what we looked at last week when Paul talks about disputable matters. It's a disputable matter about how he did it. You may think one thing, I may think another. How do we deal with disputable matters? Paul's really clear in the New Testament. He says that around disputable matters... I shouldn't do anything that's going to prove a stumbling block to you. 
So if I believe one thing quite strongly, but I know that you believe something different about this, and actually if I really press home my opinion over yours, and that's going to unsettle you and shake you and cause you to stumble, well then I'm not acting in love. And over disputable matters, Paul says we must act in love. So my advice to you is, yes, we can have these sorts of debates and conversations about how it might happen and how God might have done it and what one person believes over another. But never allow your brother or your sister to stumble over what you believe. And if it's better for you to stay silent because it's going to cause them to stumble, then it's better for you to do that over a disputable matter. And this is a disputable matter. But that's an aside. So let's look at why things went so dreadfully wrong and why people feel the way they do about work. Because clearly when, when it was designed, it was what we were supposed to do. It was what we were made for. And yet for many of us, we will spend certainly part of our working life not feeling that way. To many of us, work is a challenge. Certainly in the world, people will be weary of work. It's draining, it's mundane, it's tedious. It can be confrontational. It can be unproductive. So let's look at Genesis 3 for a moment. Genesis 3, verse 17, says this. Following the fall, following sin coming into the world... God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's all a little bit depressing, really, isn't it, when you read that? And you understand now why work can seem like it does. And certainly for the vast majority of the British population, that's how they feel about work, that it's a little bit of a chore. They'd rather not do it. They don't get enough free time. And yet the reality is we get more free time now than we ever have in all the generations past. And when you read this, you think, well, that's why. That's why we feel a bit like that about work. My grandmother, who I've spoken to you about before on occasions, used to, with a complete straight face, sing this little ditty to me, which apparently is based on a very old hymn. I'm glad we don't sing this hymn here. But this hymn starts like this, and then she had her own little version of it, and it went like this. Here we suffer grief and pain. Over the way, they suffer the same. And jolly sight worse next door. Oh, won't it be joyful, 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 joyful. Oh, won't it be joyful when we meet to part no more. <laughs> Perhaps that's the answer. Perhaps it's just supposed to be like this until we get to heaven. I don't think we'll be introducing the hymn, which really is called Here We Suffer Grief and Pain. There is a hymn called Here We Suffer Grief and Pain. I'm not, I'm, I'm not thinking that we'll introduce that at the next band practice. Um, but, but maybe that's, that's what we just have to expect. We have to grit our teeth and bear it and get through it. And, and well, in heaven, it'll be better. 
except that Jesus came to redeem every part of life. He came to redeem our relationships, our lifestyle, our addictions, and he came to redeem our work. Jesus wants to transform the productivity of our lives. And there's a wonderful picture of this, where in the Gospels, on two occasions, Jesus comes to people who are working unproductively. He comes to his disciples who are out fishing. And they've been out all night, and they probably felt about work like half our population feel. Nets have been out. They've got nothing all night. They've been working for hours. It was unproductive. What are we doing? And then Jesus breathes on it. And their productivity level goes up so much they can hardly drag it all back in. It's a wonderful picture of how God wants to make our working hours productive and how Jesus came not just to offer you the promise of rest in heaven, but to redeem your working life too. Sin messed up the world of work, and Jesus came to redeem it. O oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. So Lord Jesus, he came to redeem us from all that had gone wrong because of Adam's sin. So let's look then at now how we can look at work and how we should process work, what we should expect from work, what God calls us to do when it comes to work. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. And here Paul is talking to slaves, uh, but slavery in Palestine was a little bit different to slavery we might think. So we tend to think of slavery in terms of what happened here in the 17th and 18th century and in America. And here slavery was somewhat different uh, in that... uh, Slaves, quite often, even if they won their freedom, would stay with the family they were working with. There was a a sense that they were almost a part of the family. They didn't have the same rights. Uh, They certainly didn't have the same inheritance rights. They weren't like natural children to that family. But they were almost part of the family. And Paul here is writing to slaves, and, and what he says, I think, is helpful for us too, just in the terms of work and how we view work. So Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. 
when we looked back at the curse that God told Adam about what his work was going to be, and God said, by the sweat of your brow you'll eat now, Jesus came and turned all that around. Do you remember what he said? He said, consider the lilies of the field. They don't labor and spin. And yet Solomon, in all his splendor, was not dressed like one of these. That's how God cares for the grass of the field that is here one day and the next is thrown into the fire. How much more will he care for you? Jesus didn't say those words to the crowd. He'd just been speaking to the crowd. The Bible says he said those words to his disciples. See, suddenly when Jesus comes, the curse is broken. Because Jesus says, no, I'm your provider now. I'm your provider. You don't have to now work by the sweat of your brow in the same way, because now I am your provider. You can now look to me for everything you need. I am your provider. Jesus releases us from the power of the curse, and he releases us when we're at work from the anxiety of feeling, I've got to do this because I need to do this to be self-sufficient. Because actually what he says instead is, Come to me. Come to me. Don't be anxious about that. Instead of being anxious about that, seek first the Father's kingdom. Work for him. Work to him. It's not about your boss anymore. It's not about pleasing man. It's about pleasing him. The curse where you have to work by the sweat of your brow to be completely self-sufficient because of what happened as a result of sin is broken by Jesus saying, if you follow me, I will care for you and provide for your needs. You are released now in your working day to do everything as if you were doing it for him. It's a completely different ballgame. There was a, a, a man who some of you might have heard of called Brother Lawrence. Brother Lawrence lived in the 1600s. He lived in France, and he had been a, a soldier as a young man, and he got badly wounded. And uh, at the end of his time in the army, he joined a group of Carmelite monks. And... Uh, Brother Lawrence determined when he started that he was going to do everything out of love for the Father, every act. And he, for 15 years, worked in the kitchens at the monastery. It was probably the last thing that Brother Lawrence wanted to do. He says when he talks about it that he had a huge aversion to working in the kitchens. And yet he determined that everything he did, he would do out of love for God. He says this. Let's find the quote. He was pleased when he could take up a straw from the ground for the love of God 
seeking only him and nothing else. And out of his life, and he was in the monastery for about 40 years, he did nothing spectacular. He didn't become a worldwide preacher. He didn't leave the monastery apart from to go and buy wine in the local town to bring back to the monastery to serve with the lunch. That was about all he went out for by the, by the readings we have. And for 40 years, he lived a life where every action he took, he tried his level best to do it out of love for God. He says that for the first few years, it was really difficult. Because like all of us, I don't know if this is true for you, I walk into work and I realize that I can leave at the end of the day and have not given God the first thought. I know there are days when, when that happens. Now, I pray more and more, God, please don't let it be like that. And I think the more you pray and the more you, you are, um, if you like, intentional about doing that, the more you find that you can build the presence of God into your working life. That, the book that was written about Brother Lawrence's life is called The Practice of the Presence of God. And what Brother Lawrence said was that for the first 10 years or so, when he was trying to live life like this, it was hard work and he had to just keep practicing. And there would be times, he says, when his mind would drift from God and he'd be doing his stuff and he'd realize he'd drifted and he'd bring himself back and he'd have to keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that. And he got to the point where it became like second nature and where he asked God to help him with every menial task and he would thank God at the end of it. And if he hadn't done it well and he'd made errors or he'd failed, he kept really short accounts with God. He said he repented really quickly and he got up and carried on with the next thing, dependent on God again. Now we might think to ourselves, well, now that's great, but it doesn't sound like he really achieved anything significant. I'll tell you what his promotion was. He was promoted from the kitchens to looking after a hundred pairs of sandals. That was his job before, I think, the period after his work in the kitchens, probably up until his death, he looked after the monk's sandals. He was the maintainer of sandals. You know, to me, that doesn't feel like promotion, I have to say. Brother Lawrence did not get promotion. He did not get worldwide acclaim. But he did everything that he possibly could out of love for the Father. What did happen as a result, he never knew about. Because actually what happened was that this book, The Practice of the Presence of God, went global. And it is quoted and used by people like Wesley and other spiritual giants who have gone back to this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. So he never knew what was going to come of that. But faithfully, 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 through his working life, through the mundane chores of cooking and washing up and caring for a hundred pairs of sandals, Brother Lawrence worked as if working to the Lord. Do you know I want to do that? I do. I want my working life to be like that. It might not win me promotion. But if I, can, if I can spend my working days 
saying, Lord, this is for you. I'll dot that I and I'll cross that T for you. I'll do that with the strength you give me for you. I'll give it back. I'll do it because I love you. This is a place I think you've put me in. I'll do this for you. Nobody else may notice it, but I'll do it for you. Not for the favour of men, not to impress my boss. I'll do it for you. Now, that doesn't mean to say, of course, that we then say to our bosses, well, actually, no, I didn't do that bit of work there because, actually, I was doing something else. It was for the Lord. <laughs> I think we'd be out on our ear pretty quick. But actually, if you do that to the Lord, you know, usually it does mean in the end you win the favour of those around you. And even if you don't, the Bible encourages us to do everything we're doing as to the Lord, out of love and passion for him. At work, my experience is this, that he equips me for what I need to do And more than that, particularly over the last 18 months for me where work has been a challenge, he works in me what is pleasing to him. Let's look at a passage in Hebrews, one of my absolute favourites. Hebrews chapter 13 says this. It might not seem like it's work to you, but bear with me. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, my experience is actually not just that God equips me for my work, But while I am there, he works in me what is pleasing to him. Now, in the last 18 months for me, that's been stripping away quite a lot of pride, I have to be honest. Where work's become a challenge, and I've been challenged about some of my work for the first time ever. And I've realized, you know what, Phil Hopgood, you're quite proud. You want to stand up and justify yourself. And he has done some major stripping away. He has lots more to do. But my experience over the last 18 months or so has been that not only does God equip us for our work, but while we are working, he is doing something wonderful inside us. We might think that we're the ones doing all the investing, but while we're doing it, he's investing in me. He is working in me what is pleasing to him. Do you know I don't think he was pleased about me being proud? And so he decided, let me do something about that. Because I want to do what's pleasing to me in you. And you know what? That's what I want too. I want him to transform me from the inside so that he is pleased with me. And work in my experience, is one of the main ways that God would do that in us. So we can pray two things when we think about going to work. God, today, will you equip me for everything good for doing your will? And will you work in me what's pleasing to you? That means that when it's a challenge and a struggle, 
I'm going to view it a different way. I might not view it that way until I get home and get on my knees. But that's what I've found recently is that I get home, sometimes I'm on my knees, and I think, no, thank you, God, for today. It, boy, was that tough. That conversation was really difficult. I just feel so threatened by that. But, but you are working in me. You're doing something in me. And do you know what? You f even find that sometimes you say, Lord, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because yes, he will equip you. And also he will work in you what is pleasing to him. What do we do, though, when work seems to be going nowhere? When we're aware that we're just doing the business and it's not particularly challenging and, you know, I'm just doing it and don't seem to be getting anywhere. Well, I know that many of you will be really encouraged often when you read the story of Joseph. And there is a man who spent many of his working years working for no recognition at all, working as a slave in Potiphar's household, diligently serving his master, getting a good reputation, winning the favour of his master till his master gave him the whole house to manage, and then Potiphar's wife comes into the picture, and all of that is just lost. Joseph thinks, what is this about? I have worked with integrity, and yet this... And then prison. And the same thing really happens. Integrity. Winning the favour of, of the prison officer. Having, being able to interpret the dreams of the baker and the wine taster. And then they forget to recommend him. And he's in prison for more years. Why? Why? Because the Joseph who'd had dreams right at the start and sensed the anointing of God on his life when he was a, a young man with his brothers, was no way ready to be prime minister of Egypt. He had some stuff to go through before he was going to be ready for God to bring him center stage into what he really had for him. And for some of you, when work feels a bit like I'm just plodding, where am I going? Do you know the way that, that Jesus has redeemed work for us? means that actually, even if you don't get the promotion you think you're getting, even if you don't end up at the, on the part of the tree that you're aiming for, you'll get his promotion, and he will do what he wants to do in you and make you the woman or the man he wants you to be, and that in the long run is far more important than whether you get to the top of the tree or not. And you might get to the top of the tree, but actually, don't you want more? to be the man or the woman who God says to, well done, good and faithful servant. Last point. Jesus says this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last.
God put us on earth to work, it all went horribly wrong. But do you know what? If you know Jesus Christ, you're now part of the family firm. It's a whole different feel. You're part of the family firm. Your boss is someone completely different. Doesn't that feel different when you're part of the family firm? You're not just an employee. You're a friend. You're a member of the family. You're adopted as a son or a daughter. I've seen a, a coach drive past my house a couple of times. I can't remember the surname on it. Let's say it's Smith. But it says Smith and Daughters. Isn't that great? This guy probably obviously didn't have sons, so he handed on his coach company to his daughters. You work for God and sons. Father and sons and daughters. That's who you work for. You work for the family firm now. It puts a whole different perspective on what your working life can be like. Because you no longer work for men, primarily. You work for and to him. You're part of the family firm. So how do you feel about work at the moment? I'm going to ask um, Becca to come back up. And I think after, over the last two Sundays, um, John in particular has felt, and I've felt too, I think, that there are some people for whom just work and, and work-life balance is just, it feels a struggle at the moment. And there's a bit of a lack of peace, or perhaps you're feeling just a lack of productivity. I feel like I put in the hours, but where's it going? And there's no sense of productivity in what I'm doing. And, and, you know, I think God wants to meet with you. And he wants to restore to you something about your work. Do you know, there was a time when David said, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Maybe that's not how you're feeling about work at the moment. But I really felt as I prayed that, that God wanted to say to some of us, I want to re-establish your boundary lines again. I want to re-establish them again so that the boundary lines fall in pleasant places for you. So we're going we're gonna to sing, and then I'm going to ask John just to lead us perhaps in prayer and response. Why don't we stand together?